Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Steve. So this is the second of our two episodes discussing the pending Facebook transfer pricing litigation in the tax court. Trial in that case is, as we understand it, potentially imminent. And we're reviewing the pretrial memorandums for the petitioner and respondent and talking about what's at stake and some of the party's arguments. The idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs, or in this case, the pretrial memos, in front of them. As always, a disclaimer. Tax break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its contents reflect only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. But it's just us hosts today, Lauren. So uh, last episode, we talked a little bit about the uh, the background of the issue in this case, and I'd encourage anyone that's sort of picking this up to maybe go back and revisit episode one, because I don't we're not going to recover sort of the basics <laughs> of the dispute. Um, we talked about the cost. This is a cost sharing dispute. And we talked about the nature of the cost sharing agreement at issue. We talked a little bit about the amounts at issue. And the big issues we covered involved the uh, the respondent, the, in this case, the IRS's attempt to value the uh, subject assets in aggregate under principles of aggregation. We talked about the Dash 7 regs from 2009, uh, the platform contribution transaction that's at issue, and the nature of, of the platform contribution. So today we wanted to pick up on some of the other interesting issues in the case. And I'm, I'm going to enumerate five. So Lauren, <laughs> I'm sure we'll just rip through all, all five of these with with ease, and with ease elegance. and clarity and elegance. elegance. Yeah. Um, uh, one is uh, pricing the user base. As we talked about, there's a there was a discrete license agreement for uh, the user base that existed at the time of the cost sharing agreement. So we're going to talk into that, and I'm sure that's going to take us into some issues about value creation and OECD and other bigger picture international issues. Uh, I want to talk for a second about the services alternative that the IRS raises, uh, just for a minute on that. Um, there's also an implicit challenge or an explicit challenge, kind of hard to say, to the Dash 7 regs. So we'll touch on that. We want to talk for a minute about Facebook's later changes to its business structure and whether that matters here. And finally, um, I want to talk about, you know, potential outcomes and how we see this case possibly shaking out. So in talking about the user base, I actually wanted to go back to page 55 of the respondent's brief, because when when the respondent, when, when the government argues that the user base can't be separately valued from the rest of the intangibles, it makes some arguments, and I, I think they're sort of worth looking at mm -hmm. uh, because it suggests, well, you can't value the user base in the abstract. Um, and I think there's an important sort of 
intellectual conflation that's happening here that I, I want to talk about. And I see you nodding because you probably agree that there's a, there's some conflation that's happening here. But um, they make three three arguments, and I, I don't know, I have a hard time sort of separating each of these three <laughs> arguments from, from each other. But, Maybe um, three ways of saying the same thing. But. A, a little, a little. I mean, I think there probably are differences in sort of the, the approach, but they, they all sound very similar. So, the, so they say, first, the size of the user base directly impacts the returns from and marginal value of any investments in technology. That feels a little sort of circular to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> am I wrong? No, no, no. I agree with you. I think, uh, like, well, which which do you have first? And you can't really say with this argument because if you're saying that the, the user base, the size of the user base impacts the returns from and the value of the investment in the technology, well, then at the beginning, you that would that would suggest that the value in the investments was zero because the user base was practically zero, right? Well, I mean, the here, record, right, the argument yeah. is that they, there was a user base, but but it but wasn't a, not... it wasn't a big user base. <laughs> right, the user base that Facebook Ireland was was meant to, to develop, or in, in the case of the government's argument, take advantage of or exploit was, negligible when compared to the user base in the US. Right, right. Then the government argues, second, Facebook's technology both facilitates and benefits from user actions. And this seems to be a point about the interaction between the technology and the users. And they give an example. It says Facebook's technology enables a user's explicit sharing of information or content for the consumption of other users, providing engagement for both the sharing and consuming users alike. This seemed to me a little sort of beside the point. Um, as we talked about last week, I mean, the the technology that they were, the primary technology they were seeking to develop was a, a mobile application that right. would work, work right. internationally. And in that regard, you're not building your mobile app based on user feedback. Indeed, there's feedback. Indeed, there's there's content that the users are creating, but that's that's separate and apart from the platform. And I think this we'll get into the third argument momentarily. But I, I do think that the valuation issue is separate from what is um, Facebook Ireland supposed to be paying for when it when it buys into this cost sharing arrangement. So we can we can talk about what the user base is, what its value is, how it plays into developing, um, you know, or how how Facebook Ireland should be compensated for developing these intangibles going forward. But that's a separate separate calculation from what should be included in the PCT. And I think they are mixing kind of both of these issues together by saying, oh, everything's inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. You need the user base to be able to build upon the existing platform and move forward. And I don't, I really don't think you do. Well, I mean, I, what I see is, and I mean, this sort of jumps ahead to the, the their third argument, but what I see is happening here is there's a conflation of the abstract legal question of valuing 
the assets that are contributed to the cost sharing agreement mm -hmm. with a practical question about how what is the best way in which to exploit these assets going forward right <laughs> right so you've got present and you've got future and you also have a legal question of valuation versus a practical question about should you break these things up and right. and those are that's that question about well the fact that these the the user base and the technology and the trademark all work together going forward that's just a that's just a statement of a fact about the world that's not that doesn't answer the question of how should you get to the right arm's length pricing for right well how should you get to the right arm's length pricing for what is actually contributed to the to the the csa and i i do i agree with you i think that it is almost um you know, it's certainly in, in the service's favor to argue that these things are always aggregated. <laughs> They're always contributed from the beginning. Um, and you need all of them because they are inextricably linked and they all build off of and play on one another. You can't disaggregate them when you value them. But it sounds like they're starting from the valuation argument and then going backward into what was contributed. So because we can't break these up, they must have all been contributed. To, to the cost sharing arrangement. So they should all be part of this buy-in. And, right. and that, then that takes us back to some of the things we talked about last episode, which is that at that point, you're just valuing a an entire business. It is as exactly. if, it is as if the entire business and it's and it's, you know, without risk has contributed to this to this sharing arrangement going forward and yeah. and you you price uh, Ireland effectively gets no return on any of the business risks that it's taking. Um, it is some those those risks are eliminated by the certainty of the the future development of this technology and its success. Right. It's it's lucky enough to be a cost sharing partner with Facebook. So what risk could it possibly face? Right. Right. <laughs> but um, we only know that it was successful looking backward. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So in valuing the user base that exists at the time of the of the cost sharing transaction, um, the petitioner actually takes what I think is a fairly inclusive valuation approach to valuing uh, that user base. So there are 392 million users, mm -hmm. including Lauren Pons, I'm sure, at the time. I was at the time a Facebook user. I was I was a, a, an international Facebook user because I opened my account here. And at the time of this discussion, I was um, living abroad. Right. So maybe you up. were, maybe you, uh, uh, depending on when you started your account, maybe you clicked and agree, had an agreement with Facebook oh. Ireland. No, Facebook. no, no. It was before this cost sharing arrangement. Okay. <laughs> so in, in valuing those 392 million users, they actually uh, tried to account for, uh, the petitioner tried to account for the sort of future benefit of those existing 392 million users. But, Reasonably, I think, from based on sort of what what the explanation is, at least in the memos, we don't have the expert reports. Mm -hmm. That doesn't account for those 392 million existing users. Don't create all 
future users. They contribute to the accumulation of users over time, but they don't account for the entirety of all, all future users. So, so there's that element, right? So you're, you're taking what respondent looks at, which is sort of all of this future income and scaling it back for mm -hmm. just future income attributable as 392 million users, but then also making an adjustment for the fact that before the cost sharing agreement, Facebook Ireland itself made investments that matter. ought to yeah. account for a portion of those users. Right. And respondent makes an argument later and it, and it's, a, it's an argument that deserves a, uh, careful examination before anyone's too persuaded by it <laughs> and that argument is that is that uh is that because this the investments by facebook ireland in in accumulating users were so small uh they're sort of negligible and that's it takes a lot more analysis to get to the notion that you should dismiss those investments. Well, yes, because those investments are examples of, of their services alternative, right? So they they tried to do it on their own. They were they were paying these am I jumping ahead? No, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. They were paying these um, these third party um, third parties to, to go out into the market and try to gather users. And this is I think it's a good example or good evidence as to why the cost sharing arrangement makes sense they're 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 like okay we're out in this, in this market we're paying these people we're not getting the kind of users signed up that we thought we could we're not expanding the base as fast or as efficiently as we um thought we might be able to we don't have the manpower to do it how else can we do it hmm. and i mean this takes us into uh I, I think we could quickly get into well, i'll jump a few steps here but uh uh talking a little bit about use it the in this context the discussion of users mm -hmm. necessarily leads to us thinking about some of what we're dealing with on the oecd front right. and amount a and and the benefits that are associated with having operations in in other countries i mean here there's a sense in which the irs is arguing well you had these contacts with these other users and those contacts are in and of themselves valuable and create sort of future value not that different from the claims that some of the destination countries make in claiming a portion of income for services like like Facebook and 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 Twitter and the like that mm -hmm. it's user created content and it's happening here and so it's pretty easy to get into a very difficult and convoluted dispute about the nature of of value creation right i mean the, the clearly some of the respondents arguments that i sort of gestured at the notion that users are creating content that that content has value for facebook um, it's it's easy to sort of translate those into the kinds of arguments that we're seeing in the same international context it is and i think i mean when the beps work started for for the digital economy um in 2015 the the clear policy articulation was that we want to be able to tax where value is created 
And I think a lot of the criticism of the Pillar 1 work and, and the amount A is that the OECD has strayed from its original <laughs> policy goal. And people are questioning, what is, what is the point of amount A? Um, because if you are talking about value creation, it's not necessarily uh, just by penetrating the market, even remotely. Um, if we're not talking about value creation, we bond even further and we're just trying to give people taxing rights where there isn't a physical presence. Um, so you get jurisdiction, um, new concepts of jurisdictional nexus that are not, that are decoupled from actually having a sales force or a warehouse or a subsidiary in a particular jurisdiction. Um, but I do think, you know, the, it kind of harkens back to old arguments in transfer pricing maybe a decade ago where um, a lot of countries with just a huge, huge population and, and burgeoning economies, so, you know, would argue that the value of being in the market was just having access to this many buyers, users. Um, and so that, so any kind of what would normally be a limited risk entity that that is that was in that jurisdiction should be afforded some some plus because of you know location savings or, or the market as the intangible. So we're kind of back to and, where we started. Right, right, and I mean, and from there, right, it's I mean, once you sort of start to stray away from value create concrete value creating activities, whether they're tangible or intangible, uh, you can certainly think about them as actual value creating activities to activities that have to do with what the users are doing and, and how they're creating, in this case, content or in other cases, sort of value for the seller. You move away from from sort of this this standard paradigm of of taxation and you're getting kind of close to something like formulary apportionment or at least that's this that's the slippery end slope of of moving away from <laughs> moving right. away, moving away from pure ideas of value creation right it's gone from value creation to revenue generation and <laughs> since you're generating revenue we just want some right right <laughs> well, um, let's go back to the the services alternative that that you mentioned, and and uh, so and I want to read. For, this is from page uh, forty seven of the of the respondents brief, and they're mm -hmm. quoting their expert, who therefore determined the best realistic alternative to the cost sharing arrangement. So the idea here is that in pricing in pricing the transaction, the best way to price it is to consider, well, what were the company's best realistic alternatives? Right. And here their experts said the best realistic alternative to the CSA was for Facebook US to retain ownership of all income rights from the rest of world business, retaining the revenues derived from the rest of the world and bearing the operating costs in the rest of the world, including the costs of paying service companies as service providers on behalf of Facebook US. Now, th this harkens back to something that the court expressly looked at and ruled against the IRS on in Amazon, mm -hmm. which as I understand it, and I, I, tell me if you think this is a, a, a too miserly of an interpretation of this <laughs> argument, but well, as I understand this argument, it is 
Well, you could have just not entered into cost sharing. Right. Right. <laughs> that, well, that is true. We could have not entered into cost sharing. But I don't, I mean, there, this, this services alternative, I think, is not kind of reflective of what their real services alternative was, which was what they were, what they were doing before they entered into cost sharing, right? That is their alternative. I mean, this is, I know it's called a realistic alternative, but this doesn't sound very realistic to me. So, well, yeah, and I think in Amazon, in, uh, in in the tax court's opinion, in Amazon, they the holding was simply that look, this cost sharing apparatus exists for a reason. Taxpayers yeah. are allowed to restructure themselves in a way to exploit uh, to to exploit these intangibles in a cost shared relation relationship with foreign affiliates and subsidiaries and and you the irs coming in and saying well if you didn't do that <laughs> the outcome would be different is not particularly reflective of the correct arm's length pricing for right entering into these transactions well the alternative is not just don't do it <laughs> right. Right. the alternative is you know in this example facebook ireland is going to have to do it itself and it found that trying to pay people to gather users was not perhaps as efficient as well, maybe if we make a mobile app and, and go about it that way, we can we can expand the user base. Um, so that that seems like that the services alternative seems to me like it's a um, a nothing burger. Well, it's it, it seems to me that uh, it's it's freighted with the decision against saying no cost sharing is an alternative in Amazon. That I mean, that's, it's, it's always an alternative. Don't to do not it. do a, yeah. a transaction, but right. that's, that's not realistic. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk about the, the sort of the challenge to the validity of the dash seven regs because you know oh always, this is right up your alley let's always do it. interested in challenges to, to regulations and and uh petitioners pre-trial memo really leaves you wanting more in terms <laughs> of the substance of the challenge it it makes a very broad gesture toward whether the dash seven regs are valid and it mm -hmm. and the way in which and, and i'm not going to do it justice but the way in which it crops up is effectively that um, if you think that the dash seven regs require this kind of aggregate valuation that the irs has carried out that does not carve out excluded non-compensable assets like foreign goodwill um, then then the dash seven regs are are invalid if that's if that's what the dash seven regs mean um then they must they must not be valid um but it doesn't articulate a, a full-throated argument under principles of the apa or chevron deference or the like as to why that would be the case um and and the respondent mentions these arguments uh, against uh, the validity of these regulations. And this is on, this is just a few pages back on page 43. They have a note, a footnote on, on the validity of the regs. And essentially they say, well, uh, 
there are no specific allegations <laughs> in support of this. Good point. <laughs> it's, it's it's a reasonable point. Um, but we can imagine sort of the contours of the of the grounds that that petitioner might uh, voice in support of this argument, which would look a lot like the kinds of arguments that we saw in Altera about right. Dash 7 regs. Right. Um, they would, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they would emanate from principles of what's what the arm's length standard requires, and they would say that to the extent that these regulations force you into some sort of valuation that departs from that, they are contrary to the statute and therefore right. not valid. And where it seems to me like the rubber meets the road in some of this is that is that there is a notion of pre-existing intangibles, yes. and and that to me is where a lot of this fight seems to be. I, I don't think either party puts it in those terms. They don't. Much. This becomes a valuation argument, like, right? As, as we saw at the beginning of this episode with the three right. arguments for the user base that. That the government advances. But the question is, are those, is that user base of, what are we valuing and is, is what we're valuing a pre-existing intangible? I think my position on this has been well documented. Been but... And clear. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say no. Just in, case, just in case people haven't been paying attention. <laughs> right. So, so let's talk a little bit. I mean, I want to mention, um, that there was some press coverage, I think this was just in 2020, about Facebook making some changes to its international structure. Um, and I mean, I guess we should talk a little bit about whether whether that matters. Um, I think I, that, the, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I don't think it does necessarily. It's interesting and it made the headlines in the tax press, of course, but I think part of it is just um, in response to some of the changes that happened under TCJA, they had an old structure that was um, not really working anymore after tax reform. Um, they certainly aren't the only ones who had the structure. Um, and it just made sense in a post, post-tax post reform 2017 act world um, to to kind of move around some, some property and, and unwind that structure. But you know, and, I don't and... think it's a mission of, of any kind of it's not an admission of anything. It's just it's just a reflection of where we are currently with with U.S. tax rules. And if I were, I mean, if was sort of putting myself in the tax court stance, um, I'd be really disinclined to weigh that as evidence of anything. Right. Right. Because it, you know, it on the one hand, uh, companies can and should be you know sort of making changes as business needs or as as the tax law evolves or as business needs change and and so it's a lot to say that you're changing it because you're admitting that your prior structure was somehow defective and even if you assume that even if the changes look um, completely shaped by the concerns that the IRA that the commissioner has raised in this litigation, I would still, as as a court, think that it, the best 
course of action for me as a decision maker is to consider only what happened before and during the years at issue and not what happened after. Because why would I want taxpayers to, why would I want to discourage taxpayers from reacting to concerns that the IRS raise um, in in prior years? I mean, that's, it seems like a, 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 the sort of thing that you would not want to do as a court. <laughs> to a right, right, right. You don't want to. No, and you you do want. Um, I think, well, from an evidentiary perspective, this is not relevant, right? Yes. Um, yes. Twenty twenty or whatever tax year they were in. Yes. And there are questions time. about admissibility that we're just not. We're not going to touch on. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it just doesn't even. Evidentiary issues aside, from a policy standpoint, I agree with you. This is not the kind of behavior that one would want to chill. You want, you know, it's like okay, right? Smooth sailing. So, so what's so what's your read on? I mean, we we're still early. There have been no witnesses. There have been no post-trial briefs. <laughs> um, but I, I sort of how how do you react to this sort of the overall? Uh, the hands that each appear, each party appears to hold at this point in the. Oh, you know, I think um, it's interesting because this, you know, as part of TCJA 482 was was modified such that these aggregation principles were were codified um, as our as is the realistic alternative principle, and the the, the definition of intangibles was expanded to include. Um, Foreign goodwill, going concern, um, and all of those kind of soft, <laughs> not explicitly articulated in 936 intangible. And residuals. I mean, just, residuals. Yeah, or non routine. Non, all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> the ephemera <laughs> in the intangible world. Where that leaves this case, you know, obviously. To the point of, of things not being um, relevant for the years at issue, the changes to TCJ have no bearing on the years at issue. In this in this case, it strikes me as being in the vein of a long line of cases in which the service was not successful, um, advancing similar types of arguments. And so we will see if this is the last in a line of cases where the IRS loses per se. Um, and then, you know, we have this switchover after TCJA where they have um, a few more arrows in their quiver and can can make more robust arguments in favor of aggregation because then it it's a concept that must apply if the secretary <laughs> determines that it is the best reflection of the value of the cost shared intangibles. Well, in what circumstances is the, is the commissioner the secretary not going to make come to that conclusion right, right. when it's beneficial for, for um, their argument so i am going to um come down on the side of of the petitioner here but we'll see <laughs> we will see what happens <laughs> what do you think? yeah yeah i mean i think i lean the same way that 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 you do and sort of, sort of trying to read the tea leaves a little bit here um it does seem to me like the outcome of this case is an outcome that is 
we talked a little bit about the challenge to the Dash 7 regs. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether or not the either side argues about that, whether the whether the petitioner makes an, makes an express argument about the validity of those regs, the viability of those regs as a mechanism for making adjustments in this interstitial period between 2009 and TCJA mm -hmm. um, is a little bit at stake. And I, what it seems to me is at issue here is that the respondent has chosen to use those regs in a kind of maximal way that, that, that they've, uh, there's, a, there's arguably an attempt to sweep a lot of future non-routine returns into the, this sort of more generous notion of a platform contribution technology right. or transaction right. right so what's what's the platform contribution and and i wonder whether that calculus pays off or whether how difficult it would have been to have a case where you argued for a more modest expansion of what counts as a platform contribution transaction and whether that would have been a better test case on these regulations and how they apply in a, in a disputed circumstance. Perhaps not, perhaps there isn't a case like that, right? Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. They had to use what was available to them in terms of the best test case. Right, and, and perhaps that, you know, other, ta I mean, uh, taxpayers did change the way in which they priced cost-sharing buy-ins post those 2009 regs. I think, I think va the valuation folks, the, the economists, that you talk to will tell you that we began to think about valuation in different ways once those regs came out. And so perhaps there were there were a lot of cases where either they had a you know the taxpayer had a more generous inclusive valuation at the outset or was willing to compromise compromise in in audit or at appeal on sort of getting to the right answer. Um, under these regs so but it will be in, it will be interesting and and um it does i mean tc this the thing about tcj is it's it, there's a sense in which it kind of lowers the stakes of all of this because well it becomes a much clearer argument that and, and a much clearer winning argument that, that the um, service can make i mean this if these facts were today um and they were arguing for aggregation that kind of presupposes that the PCT has to include some of this user base and marketing intangible value that, that we're arguing under the old regs should be excluded for the most right. part right. Um, as a future, future intangible, not a current. Um, but if their argument is, well, they're inextricably linked and we can't, we can't decouple them, we can't value them separately, then by default, they become all thrown into the buy-in pot. So very well, interesting. <laughs> yes, and we'll we will see, and perhaps we'll have some uh, uh, updates on when trial gets scheduled. It'd be very interesting to see whether trial moves forward. I think there's still a, a lot to be uh, uh, sorted out in terms of COVID. And <laughs> oh yeah, we're still a long live. way, long way away from a trial. trial it's a big, trial. it's a big case to try. 
uh, on a virtual platform. So um, nice. great. Well, we'll keep our listeners updated. Uh, thanks, everyone. Please uh, subscribe and continue to listen. If you have comments or questions or topics that you think we should cover, please let us know. You can send an email to podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Steve.